0: Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and his assistant Watson had gone camping, and after a long day, uh, they laid down for the night. And Holmes said to Watson, Look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson said, I see millions of stars. And Holmes said, Well, what does that tell you? And of course, Watson, being very astute in his observation skills, looked up at the sky and said, Well, you know, first of all, astronomically, it tells me there is millions and millions of stars. probably with it thousands and thousands of planets. Theologically, as I look up into the heavens, I see the omnipotence of God and the frailty of humanity. On top of that, meteorologically, it tells me seeing this clear sky, we're probably going to have a great day tomorrow hiking and see this great wilderness that we're in. And Watson turned to Holmes and said, what do you, what does it tell you? And Holmes said, well, Watson, it tells me that somebody stole our tent. You see, sometimes we miss the obvious. Uh, sometimes we miss the big picture. And so it would be wise as we wrap up the uh, series on James for us to ask that question, what is the big picture? Uh, what is the obvious point that James has been making for us in these five uh, chapters? We've learned a lot of little lessons along the way, but how do we synthesize all those parts together into a whole? What's the main purpose of the book of James? Well, my answer to that question is that James told us what he wants for us right in the very beginning of the book. And he's been showing us how to live out this truth again and again, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, this same purpose. He told us all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 4 that his desire for us, and hopefully now our desire for ourselves, is that we might be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. The goal is that we might be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. This is the direction that James has been pointing us. This is why we call the series The Road Less Traveled, because there's these two roads. There's these two ways. There's these two paths. There's this easy road, the road of complacency. And then there's this more challenging road, the godly way. Of course, this comes from a famous poem written by Robert Frost, and the end of it goes like this, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. That has made all the difference. Which road do you want? On? Which one do you want to take? Do you want to take the more comfortable road, or do you want to take the more challenging road and follow the Lord Jesus? That's what the passage is about today as we close the book. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. James, our friend, our brother in Christ, is about to finish this letter. And as is common with a lot of New Testament writers, as they approach the end of their letters, they begin to pick up the pace toward the end. It kind of reminds me when I drop off my daughter at college. Right before I go and say my goodbyes, I have to remind her of a bunch of things, right? Now, Alex, don't forget to call your mom and. Make sure you eat right in the cafeteria and make sure you check the antifreeze level once in a while in your car and here's a copy of your health insurance card if you ever need it. Okay, anything else? Love you, bye. A lot of little things here come up at the end and for James, the way to synthesize that, the way to make sense of what he's saying is that these are the characteristics of a mature Christian. And here at the end, he gives us four more characteristics of Christian maturity before he closes. Four characteristics. They are patience, Being a person of your word, being a person of prayer, and being a person of bold love. That's where we're headed. Let's pick it up in verse 7. If you're ready, say amen. Amen. He starts like this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Here he picks up on a theme that he began earlier in chapter 1, patience through trials and endurance. He brings it back at the end. That's no accident. Because if you want to be a mature Christian, you must be a person of patience. Be a person of patience. Can we say that together? Be a person of patience. Now, can we just be honest, guys? We're not a very patient culture. And it is getting worse and worse and worse. This is very demanding, very fast place time that we live. Got to get it now. Got to get it now. If you have Amazon Prime, I mean, no need to go to the store. You can just click a button. Like magic, it pops up on your doorstep two days later. You want to rent a movie? No need to go to the video store. You can stream it right now on whatever device that you have. How many of you this week have been downloading something on your computer and because it was taking too long, you just quit and shut it down altogether? Yeah, you know what? You can be honest. You're like, man, this thing's taking forever. I've been waiting 19 seconds so far. Just never mind. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. Recently, I was going through the drive through at Chick fil A. I was getting a number one value meal because that's what you get over there, number one value meal because that is a good pickle on there, right? So as I am going through the drive-thru, I realize there is two lanes in the drive-thru now because it just ain't fast enough with one lane, right? we got to pick up the pace of this thing, speed this process up. Everything is so fast. I was trying to explain to my girls that when I was in school, they would have us do research papers, and I would have to go look up topics and authors in this ancient device called a card catalog. I'm like there was drawers and you would pull them out. There's this thing called the Dewey Decimal System and you would look up the author's last name and it wouldn't be there. So you look up the title of the book and then you finally find the book because the library had to, the librarian had to help you anyway. And you're not done so you want to take, you, you can't, see you had to actually, if you wanted to do the research and take the book home, you'd have to go to the copy machine and make copies, right, which were like 45 cents each, which is like a million dollars if you're in high school, right, and you never get the copy right the first time, right, so you always have to waste a few, you know, and then you bring the copies home and do your research at home, and my kids are like, wow, that is really painstaking to do research like this. I'm like, yes, everything is so much easier and faster nowadays, but here's the ironic thing. The more Quick and fast it gets, the more impatient we've gotten. There was a recent article in the New York Times called The Tyranny of the Convenient. And the author pointed out that though there's nothing inherently wrong with things being faster that can be a problem if we always make all our decisions based on what's convenient and efficient all the time. Because that can bump up against other ideals that we also value in life too, right? Like there is value in hard labor. There's value in not being comfortable all the time. There's value in learning a trade and learning a skill and messing up at it and trying again. There's value in learning a musical instrument. There's value in enduring through some difficulties. And so that's part of Maturity. That's what James is saying. The road less traveled involves a lot of patience, and he he gives us an illustration about this. Let's take a look. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, the reality of farming is that farming involves a lot of waiting, right? waiting to till, waiting to plant, waiting to harvest. There's just a lot of waiting. And the farmer waits and he has to wait on things that he has like zero control over, right? Like the sun and the rain, right? He has to depend you don't know, have modern irrigation techniques back then, right? You're waiting on good old-fashioned rain. And here's the thing. If you got impatient, if you didn't wait for those two critical rains in the land of Israel and you just went ahead and farmed before those two rains came, you don't get the full benefit of that harvest. You miss out. Here's James's point. Yes, patience is hard, but it's never as hard as the consequences of impatience. Yes, patience is hard, but it's never as hard as the consequences of impatience. Here's the difference between patience and impatience. Patience says, I'll forego gratification in the present for a greater harvest in the future. Whereas impatience says, I'll forego that harvest in the future for gratification right now in the present. See, patience says, I'll forbear with some uncertainty right now for a greater harvest in the future. Impatience says, eh, I'll forego that harvest in the future. I got to have something for certain right now. In other words, impatience is very now-centered. I want it now. I, I want my immediate reward now. I, I want my desires now. Maybe you saw that commercial for that legal firm on TV where there's all these people saying, it's my money and I want it now. It's my money and I want it now. Such an annoying commercial, right? But well, that's, how, that's the way our culture is. Impatience says, I've got to have it now. My desires before anything else. But here's James's point. Don't you see there's an inherent danger to impatience? Don't you see that's myopic? Don't you see that's short-sighted? Don't you see you got to play the long game or you're going to miss out? It's not just farming, right? Let's say if you're in business and you abandon a particular enterprise prematurely because you want something more concrete and immediate in your gains, you're never going to see the full reward of your enterprise. If you're a baker and you don't allow the yeast to leaven the whole dough, you're not going to have good bread. If you're a mom and your child is particularly difficult one day, and you become impatient with that child, that's not going to calm your child down if you do that. That's going to make it worse, isn't it? That's what James is saying. Impatience only makes a difficult situation go from bad to worse. And it ruins your attitude, which is why he says in verse 9 do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James knows how easy it is to grumble and complain when we're under pressure, when we're tense, when we're irritated. So we grumble. A hundred years ago, Spurgeon preached on this passage, and here's what he said. Impatience sours the temper, chills the blood, sickens the heart, prostrates the vigor of one's spirit and spoils the enterprise of life before it is ripe for history. Now, the problem with that, Spurgeon, the problem with this, James, is we're from New Jersey, and grumbling and complaining is like a hobby. It's like a pastime for us. We're always grumbling and complaining. We're, yeah, did you see 287 the other day? How backed up that marron? Are you kidding me with that? I mean, come on. I mean, you... You, the taxes, the traffic, our sports teams, we're always grumbling and complaining. I'm in a light the other day, and I got distracted looking at something out the window, and I mean, I, the light turned a, a half a second. I'm getting beeped at, right? You can't wait a half a second, man. We are stressed, and we grumble, and we complain to each other. Spurgeon is saying, James is saying, if you grumble, if you're impatient, you're never going to get the full benefit of the trial that God has sent your way. You'll never know what great things will come. You're sacrificing the potential benefit with your impatience. You're not going to know how that trial should make you sweeter or calmer or more kind or more humble unless you have patience. Then he gives us two examples. Exhibit A. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Man, that was a rough job in the Old Testament. The prophets would speak, Israel would sin. It was like a broken record again and again and again. They called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Why why is he so upset? Because nobody ever listened to him. That took a lot of patience to live out his life that way. In the same way, if we're going to follow God, it's going to take patience on our behalf too. And then Exhibit B, he says, how about this one? Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job played in the NCAA championship of suffering, and he won. He had everything going for him, man. Nice house, nice family, nice business, good health. And he lost it all. In a two-day period, literally, everything falls apart. Just imagine that. You go to your child's funeral, but it's not just one casket at the front. There's ten caskets at the front this is what job had to go through but it's amazing you you read that book and throughout the whole thing he never forsakes god he stays faithful and then at the end god honors him the second half of job's life was more blessed than the first that's patience Now, you may not be going through all that, and I don't know what you're going through, and I don't want to be insensitive. But whatever it is, even in the worst possible suffering, there's always great hope for the follower of God and the follower of Christ because the Bible teaches that even in the middle of it all, number one, God never forsakes you. And number two, there is always some unexpected beauty about this trial and suffering. Now, you may have to work to find it. You may have to look for that little bit of sparkling crystal in the darkness when things are bad. You have to look for what God is trying to show you. But when you find it, that will get you through some very dark times. I'm not trying to say suffering is easy or suffering is good. It's not good. But if you'll change your perspective and realize God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then that can make the situation just painful for you. And it doesn't have to be absolute hell. And there's a big gap there. It can be just painful. It doesn't have to be hell. Notice one more thing. He says, be Be patient in light of the coming of the Lord, in verse 8. And there's really a wonderful gem of hope right there for the follower of God. One day there will be justice. One day he will right every wrong. One day... I'm convinced like a child, Dostoevsky said, that everything will be made right by God and in eternal harmony. It will make it possible not only to forgive everything that's happened, but to actually justify the fact that God allowed it to happen in my life. So he says, with that truth, establish your hearts. The word establish there means to stabilize yourself, affix something, like prop yourself up against something, like up against something somehow. And what is it? That God will return and send his son and one day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And the Christians used to say to one another, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. This was such a great source of strength and hope for the first century Christians enduring persecution, the second coming. And as Christians, don't we know the ultimate example of patience was Jesus himself As we approach Holy Week, don't we remember in the Garden of Gethsemane the kind of patience that our Lord displayed? Even on the cross, he was patient unto death. Why? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us why. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was a harvest. After the deep drought, there was a magnificent harvest. It was you and me, you were his harvest. You were the one he endured for. You were the one he waited patiently for. You were the one he waited for and went through it all for. It was for you. You were that harvest. And now James says, see that? When you go through your long, hard season of drought, you can just like that patiently endure for him. I like the way John Lynn puts it. You were the joy set before him. So he could be the joy set before you. Wow. He is our harvest. He is the one we long for to see face to face. And until then, James says, wait patiently. Second characteristic of spiritual maturity has to do with integrity in my speech. Take a look at verse 12 again. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let Your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, in those days, it was very common to take oaths and swear in this manner. James says, Don't do that. Why not? Because an oath, if you think about what you're doing there, what you're doing is you're marking off an area of truthfulness in your speech so as to separate it from other parts of your speech, which may have been less than truthful. In other words, you're saying, I know ordinarily I can be untruthful and quite irresponsible with my words, but not now. Right now, I swear I'm going to tell you the truth. If you need to do that, that's like a problem, right? Instead, James says, why don't you just be a person of your word all the time? Why don't you just be truthful all the time? That's what a mature Christian is, a person of their word. You need to be a person of your word. Can we say that? Be a person of your word. Because if you're not, that's a major problem. It's like a really big deal, man. You say, What's the big deal? Well, let me ask you this. What do you think it is that actually ties two people together in any relationship? The answer is your word. If you two don't know that you can count on each other's word, you got like nothing, man. You got nothing. Think about this. What happens when you tell somebody you're going to do something, like some kind of commitment, large or small? What happens? There's an agreement there. Now you've asked for their trust, and you've created some sort of expectation in the other person. But then when you don't keep your word, what happens when we break our word with someone? Well, first of all, if I break my word, I'm aware of that fact, right? So it kind of bothers my conscience, and that's not good, because I know I told you that. But secondly, it bothers you too. Like, well, you know, Pastor Dave said he would do this, but he didn't. I don't know why, so I'm not really sure what to think about our relationship now. And you and me, we start having this relationship breakdown, right? And if this happens again and again and again with us, over time, we have an inevitable erosion of trust that occurs. So think about it. If you're constantly one of those people that's breaking off your commitments, or if you're constantly like 10 minutes late everywhere you go, what kind of message are you sending? You're sending the message, you guys really can't count on me. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you always have to be perfect. Of course, you will mess up from time to time. But the question is, what do you do then? What you should do is account for the fact that you blew it and renegotiate your word for the future because that's what mature people do. That shows respect for them and it shows that you have respect for your own word as well. But to not account for it, to act like nothing happened, surely that's not going to create trust. It's surely not loving the other person, not how you would want to be loved, right? So listen, like it or not, small or large... Your word affects other people. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Even if it's small, it matters. Don't give yourself permission to get off the hook with your word. It's not good, and it starts with small things. But, you know, it's like a Song of Solomon says, it's like the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. You know, Jesus said, if you're faithful with small, you'll be faithful with much. I know it sounds like I'm coming down hard here, but really, I'm rooting for you. I want you to take your own word seriously. I'm actually standing for you, not against you right now. Your word is very important. And so I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this. Your word is one of the most precious things you possess. Take good care of it. Let me give you this quote from on the screen. A kept promise is the most tangible expression of love there is. A kept promise is the most tangible expression of love there is. If I say I love you, but there's no action to back it up, I mean, what good is that? This is what holds people together. Let me just tell you a story about a guy who went to go out with his little daughter and they were picking flowers. And they're picking flowers and they're having a good time. And she turns to him and says, Daddy, you love me. And he says, well, I sure do, honey, that's true. But what makes you say that right now? And she says, well, Dad, you said we would go out here and pick flowers, and here we are. Simple as that. It's your word that communicates to others that you love them. And here's the bigger reason where do you think we get this whole idea of keeping our word from? Where do you think we get this concept of keeping our promises? Someone I know? I ask people, how do you know the God of the Bible loves you? Well, I just know. Well, how do you know? I assert the reason that you know is because the God of the Bible has made promises to you and kept those promises. That's how you know. In fact, Jesus is called the Word, right? Come in the flesh. He is the ultimate promise that God fulfilled. Our God always, always, always keeps his Word. You were made in his image, therefore you ought to keep your Word as well because you're made to reflect him. So that's what a mature Christian does. They are a person of their Word. Third characteristic James mentions here about mature Christians is he says you should also be a person of of prayer. You should be characterized by being a person of prayer. Now, that's the next section. We'll start in verse 13. He says this, is anyone of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Pause. Notice two words that pop up immediately, prayer and praise. And what this tells us is that we have a God of all seasons. We have a God that we can turn to when things go well. And we have a God that we can turn to when things go badly. What do we do during hard times? James says, What what do we do during times when things are going well? James says, Go to God and praise. This is why we have this email that goes out to our church body every Wednesday called Praise and Prayer. James says, Both circumstances should drive you upward to God. When things go bad, We pray, we believe it can work out for our good. Even when bad things happen, we can view those very differently from the world because we can go deeper with God and deeper into his word and deeper into where we need to grow in character and conformity to Christ. And then when things go good... We don't get prideful or arrogant and make it all about us. Instead, we go to God and praise him for those blessings in our lives and we give him all of the glory. This is what James is saying. No matter what happens, whether good or bad, let the situation drive you to God. Focus your attention on God, not on yourself. And here's why. If things are bad and I focus on myself, then I'm gonna turn into despair and depression and self-pity. And if things are good and I turn to myself, I'm gonna turn toward pride and arrogance and self-exaltation. So James says, don't do that. Whatever happens, focus on God no matter what, because he's a God of all seasons. Brothers and sisters, here's what James is saying. You have a God who is blessing you in the good times, and you have a God who is with you in the hard times. You have a God who's worthy of your prayer, and you have a God who's worthy of your praise, and so we should come to him at all times. As the psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Let his praise continually be in my mouth, because we have a God for all seasons. Amen? Amen? Amen. Then he goes on to say this, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now these verses have multiple and controversial interpretations. You may or may not agree with my conclusions today. That's okay. But let me give you the lay of the land. First of all, This is where some see the tradition of extreme unction or last rites coming from, where you prepare someone for death by anointing them with oil and praying over them. With all due respect, I do not believe this is the correct understanding of this passage. You can see from the context, James is not preparing someone to die. Uh, He's not talking about that. He's actually preparing them for life and potential healing. As an aside, as a pastor, I'm oftentimes found in the hospital with many people right before they pass along from this life, and it's a privilege to be there, and I'm glad to be there and read Scripture and pray for them, but I don't believe in giving last rites. And the reason is because I say, I actually don't have the authority to give you last rites, but I can tell you about the one who can give you first rites. His name is Jesus Christ, and the scriptures promise us that if you place your faith in him, he will take away your sins, forgive you of your sins, and he will give you first rights, and if you have first rights, then you don't need last rights. Secondly, he seems to say here, James seems to say here, that there's some connection between spiritual issues and physical illness at the end of verse 15. Now, let me say something really careful. Yes, at times, the New Testament does teach That spiritual sin can lead to physical illness. It mentions that in 1 Corinthians 11 and a couple other places. Yes, there is a connection. Deep soul sorrow can sometimes lead to illness. Uh, Doctors will tell us that anxiety and worry will lead to hypertension. A lack of peace will sometimes lead to a lack of sleep, causing all kinds of problems. There is a connection between our mind and our body and spiritual and physical issues. But not always. Don't ever stand in the place of the judge over someone who is sick as if you know for sure it stems from some personal sin. That's what the friends of Job's, Job's friends thought, and they were severely rebuked by God for that mindset at the end of the book. You don't want that. The Bible does not teach that. Here's what James is saying, and I'll just teach here, and then I'll go back to preaching. First, if you're sick, he encourages you to call for the elders, the leaders of the local church. This is not a public healing service. This is occurring inside of a hospital or home. Second, the elders anoint him with oil What does that mean? Some say the oil here was medicinal, as you see used in other places in that time, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you take that interpretation, then you would say, well, this verse teaches that we should both seek our physician and we should also seek the great physician, that we should pray and also seek medical attention. And that's actually uh, very wise. Other people, though, say the oil here is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and I would personally lean towards that view. And so we as elders would anoint with oil, and thirdly, it says pray over that person. And we pray in faith that God can heal. We ask that He will heal. And at times He does. I believe that. I believe God can heal. And I've seen God heal. And we pray to that end. But some people teach that it is always the case in the New Testament that God brings physical healing. And I don't think that's the correct understanding. For many reasons. First of all, there's so many biblical examples which contradict that. Yes, the New Testament teaches that God is a God of the miraculous. Yes, the Bible teaches that God intervenes for His glory. Yes, God can bring physical healing at times. But when you search the Bible and look at church history, Surely you must see all the recorded examples of physical suffering that were not healed by God and were in accordance with God's perfect plan. Things like Paul's thorn in the flesh that he prayed for and God did not grant his request. You see other small examples like Epaphroditus' weakness and sickness in Philippians chapter 2, or his beloved son Timothy, who was ill in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can't tell me that those guys lacked faith, and you can't tell me that it's always, always, always God's will to bring physical healing. Certainly not. Plus, here's the other thing. If you're taught that your healing is dependent on the strength of your faith, and you're not healed... That is unbelievably burdensome and devastating on top of the condition you're already struggling with. Talk about kicking somebody when they're down. One time, Johnny Erickson Tata came to talk to us at Dallas Seminary and she gave us a biblical theology of suffering. I remember as she was talking, she was asking us to pray for her because she was out of breath and could barely give the lecture. And she told this story about how she was in Israel and she sat by the pool of Bethesda, which is the place where Jesus healed the lame man. And she's thought about all the times that she had asked God to heal her. And she actually sat down, started weeping, and she said, God, I just want to take this time to thank you for saying no to my requests for healing. And then she said this. She said, my wheelchair was the key to seeing all this happen especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. Then she went on to talk about all the harm that's done in her ministry called Johnny and Friends. With this kind of teaching, That somehow, if I just have enough faith in God that he must heal, and then when they prayed and it didn't happen, and they think their lack of faith is the reason why they were not healed. Friends, that's not right. That's incredibly cruel. That's not what the prayer of faith is in the Bible. Study the Bible. The prayer of faith is the prayer that says, God, thy will be done. Lord, not my will, but your will. Be done. The prayer of faith in the New Testament is a prayer that always, always, always yields to God's sovereignty. And we live for him, the one who gave his everything for us. And if we don't receive our complete healing in this life, we know for sure we will receive our complete healing in the next life. But for now, whatever God chooses to do, we promise God, no matter what, even if you don't, I will still serve you. That's the prayer of faith. Then James goes on to say this in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here he speaks to the power of confession. There is great power in this spiritual discipline when we confess not just to God, but to another brother or sister in Christ. As they say in the 12 steps, you are as sick as the secrets you keep. There are some things that only grow in the dark like mold confess those things. Brother, you're not going to be able to fix that lust problem by yourself. Bring it out into the light. Oh Dave, I think I'm just going to keep trying. How long have you had that? Since I was 13. Do you know how stupid you sound to me right now? Bring it into the light. Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. Now this doesn't mean we have to hang out our dirty laundry for everybody. But it does mean we should find a band of brothers and a group of sisters that we can be real with and that we can be honest with and we can pray for one another for not only physical but spiritual healing. You know, in my household, we have this constant argument. It's about the laundry. We have this fight. Maybe you have this fight in your house about the laundry too. There's certain people in our household that like to do a lot of laundry at, the, at, at, at one time because they don't want to do two loads. So they stuff so much stuff in the washing machine. But the problem is it's so stuffed full that the stuff in there doesn't actually come out clean. Why do you do that, babe? I know. <laughs> Guilty. The problem is, we have to expose the dirt and the water to the detergent. <laughs> Only when you do that, the dirt comes out. Friends, what James is saying is just like that. You must expose the dirt to the detergent. You must confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you will be clean. The devil is the one who wants you to isolate. The devil is the one who wants you to never come out into the light. He wants you all by yourself in the dark and feeling nothing but loneliness and shame for that stuff. Look what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone And the more alone you are, the stronger that sin's power is over you. Confession destroys the power of that sin and that shame and releases that burden of guilt in your life. That's why God has commanded us to confess our sins one to another. Our Catholic brothers and sisters do such a better job at this than we do. Do you do that? Do you confess your sins one to another? Do you have a person that you can trust in your life so that you can be obedient here, because this is what we're called to do. Confess and pray for one another. Then he goes on to say this, for the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The word powerful there speaks about the power of God who created the whole world with his word. The word effective is like an antibiotic. It is effective against a disease. God says our prayers are both powerful and effective. You might say, well, Pastor David, maybe maybe you, but I don't know. Can you pray for me? Because I don't. And people ask me to pray, for, and I will pray for you. So please ask. But I think sometimes when some people ask that question, they're like, well, you know, you're a pastor, so maybe your prayers hold more weight than my prayers. So it'd be good for you to pray for me. And that, guys, that's a little legalistic. That's not what the scriptures teach us. This actually goes directly against the next verse that James gives us in verse 17. Look, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, Elijah had a nature like ours. Elijah was a man like us. Underline that in your Bible right there. He was not divine. He was not supernatural. Nothing real special about this guy. He was just a man just like you and just like me. After all, that's all God has to work with. There's nothing that God did through him that he couldn't do through you or me. God has used the same material before. Search the scriptures and see the men that God has used in answered prayer and you will find them all to be fallible and full of flaws. But they had a heart after God and they believed that he heard their prayers. You have a very important and special resource given from heaven to you. It's absolutely essential to spiritual battles in your life, and it is prayer. James has told us earlier, you have not because you ask not. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Think about it. What did the disciples do in the upper room that led to the first day of Pentecost? It says they gave themselves fully to strategic planning. They gave themselves fully to fundraising. Oh, no. They gave themselves fully to prayer. Let me remind you who wrote this little letter. His name was James. Anybody know his nickname? James the Camel Knees. The reason is because he had this reputation for being a man of prayer. He actually developed big knots on his knees from spending so many hours at the temple. He would go there alone, be found kneeling there, praying for forgiveness for his people. Why was James able to pray so much? The answer is he actually knew the God he was talking to personally. He lived with the Alpha and the Omega himself. He was his half-brother, and he believed that his half-brother was still available to talk to, although he was in heaven, for intercession. And he believed there was tremendous power in that conversation and tremendous power in prayer, and he understood what a powerful weapon God has given us in prayer. I suggest that if we believed like he believed, then it would logically follow that our knees would be bent out of shape too. The question here is not about James's knees. The question is about my knees. What do our knees look like? Are you praying? How is your prayer life? How often have you prayed this week? How many minutes of prayer do you commit to God every day? James says if you want to be a mature Christian, you must be a person of prayer. Point number four. The characteristic number four he mentions here is that a mature Christian must be a person of bold love. Can we say that together? Be a person of bold love. 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. First of all, notice the words anyone among you. Anyone among you. It's among them. He's not saying those on the outside. He's saying those among you. In other words, there will be people who gather together with us in church who will wander away from the truth. That should give us reason for concern. They are in our adult classes. They are in my small group. They are in our youth group. They come to our church. That should cause us to pause and pursue one another and ask each other, how are you really doing? Because often we come to church and we just spend our time talking about trivial matters and we don't dig into matters of spiritual significance or eternal significance or develop those friendships with people who will speak truth into your life. Do you have somebody that will question you? Somebody that will challenge you? Somebody that will get in your face, in love, brother or sister, you're not doing what's right. Do you have somebody like that or do you just dismiss everybody who disagrees with you? He says, my brothers, if any of you wonders, notice that word wonders, it means to be misled or deceived. It means to go astray, to no longer believe what's true. What does that look like? Well, at the end, it looks pretty bad there. But at the beginning, it just looks like a lax prayer life, no confession of sin one to another, no time in the Word of God, disconnected from the Christian community, no church attendance. Brothers and sisters, those are all red flags. Those are all cries for help. I've seen this many times, and not just as a pastor. It's much more personal for me than that. I've had people close to me, very closely, close to me, wander away and get involved in behaviors that are not to be excused, But I've watched the pain and the heartache of their regret over their sinful choices. And they were too ashamed to admit it to anybody because they knew they would be pushed away by those in the church. Fellow believers who were keeping them at arm's length. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you. James here may be talking about somebody who's leaving the faith altogether, who perhaps isn't a Christian in the first place, and that may be the the case, and we'll talk about that. But I want to challenge you as a church to go after the wanderer who is saved. The wanderer in our own church, the wanderer who has sinned, the wanderer who has done something wrong. And yes, there are consequences for those actions, but just because there's consequences for those actions doesn't mean we shouldn't love them. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue them. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrap our arms around them. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't cry for them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't spend time with them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them. Hurting souls for whom Christ died. Too many times in our own lives, we see those people and we're like, Don't want to get involved. Too complicated. Or worse, we push them away. As if there isn't inside of our own hearts something that wanders away from a holy God, as if there isn't equal sin. Maybe we haven't done the same exact things that they did, but all of our hearts run away from God, brothers and sisters, there but by the grace of God, so too go I. Can I challenge you? Don't do that. Don't push them away. This is real. You will have them around you. They will be part of the body of Christ. Your friends may be in this room. And here's my prayer. May this church, may our church, may Millington Baptist Church, be the church who pursues them. May this be the room who goes after them and wraps our arms around them and won't let them go. Can I challenge you to have that kind of bold love? Do you really love one another? Are we really the body of Christ who values every single member where one person hurts, you hurt? This is a mindset shift. We're in this together and we say, if they go down, I go down. If he goes down, we go down. That's the right way to think. It's like a search and rescue mission. I am challenging you to be part of the search and rescue mission for the body of Christ. Why don't we do this? Well, one reason is because it's not easy. Confrontation is not comfortable. For some of you, even as I'm talking, even the thought of conflict brings with it a bunch of anxiety for you. The thought of somebody not liking you or losing a friend is just not a good thought, but yet this is what God commands us to do, right? A second reason is that this requires first some degree of self-examination, Jesus said, before I go talking to my brother about the speck in his eye, I better take a second look at the log in my own eye first. And if I'm going to talk to my brother, then first got to look in the mirror and acknowledge my own sinfulness. And I'm uncomfortable looking at myself, so I avoid it. But I think there's a third reason. The third reason is because we've misunderstood the word love. Our society has confused the biblical word of love with the idea of being nice and being polite, and just accepting everything, and tolerating everything. Just being nice, that's like pathetic. That's not love. There were times where Jesus was not nice. He was not polite. They didn't hang him on a cross because he was nice. He was very confrontational at times, but always from a spirit and a heart of deep love for that person. Do you love your brothers and sisters enough to confront them? Do you love them enough to go to them with tears in your eyes, not a hammer in your hand, to go tell them, hey, what you're doing is not good for you? Brothers and sisters, we should compassionately confront those who are erring. Then it says, if someone brings him back, who is this someone? He doesn't say the pastor, he doesn't say the elders. He just says, Someone. You are the someone. I am the someone. We are the someone. I am someone. Can you say that with me? I am someone. Somebody go get them. Somebody bring them back. Somebody, somebody go get in your car and drive to where they are and say, Yes, this wasn't good. And yes, there's consequences. And yes, we want you to come back to the truth. But God still loves you, and so do I. Somebody, whoever, he says, whoever, not the pastor, not just the elders, although we're certainly included here. It's much broader than that. He says, whoever, this is the body of Christ. This is all of us. That James says, I want you to be a person of bold love. Then notice again, he says in verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let him know. Let him know. I saw that phrase and I thought, oh, James, you're hearkening all the way back to the very beginning of your letter. You're hearkening all the way back to chapter one and verse three, where you began this powerful little letter with those words, for you know. For you know. Let me remind you of how he began. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. And here's James's goal again, that we may be Perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. This is the road less traveled, but not just for us as individuals. This is the goal as we look around at our brothers and sisters who wander away, who've gotten on the wide road that leads to destruction. James says, go get them back and go put them back on the road less traveled that leads to being perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. Go on a search and rescue mission for the wanderer. Go with bold love. Why? Because in this final way, James says, you imitate your Savior. He's the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's the one who came after the wanderer. James says, go get him back and be like your Savior. He came to rescue us and cover for us a multitude of sins. Be a person of bold love. Be a person of patience. Be a person of your word. Be a person of prayer. Be a person of bold love. Amen. Amen. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, I can't help but to remember the song written by Robert Robinson in 1758. And so as the team comes, just listen carefully to these words. Jesus taught me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger with his precious blood. How his kindness pursues me. Mortal tongue can never tell. Clothed in flesh till death shall loose me, I cannot proclaim it well. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, prone. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.